Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. In 1962, archaeologists investigating an ancient funeral pyre just outside of the Greek city of Thessaloniki made a fascinating discovery, a half-charred papyrus that turned out to be written some 2400 years earlier, sometime in the 4th century BC. And while it's taken an exceptionally long time to piece together its contents, a basic picture is finally beginning to emerge, which according to University of Michigan classicist Richard Janko, is really quite remarkable indeed, holding within it the potential to force us to significantly rethink much of our present understanding of the social world of ancient Greece. Fascinating story about the Dreveni papyrus, which not too long ago I had never heard of at all. and you have your own intriguing and perhaps somewhat unorthodox views about the, the papyrus, but we should first talk about what this thing actually is. Well, so, um, I'm happy to do that. The, uh, this is the oldest European book, the oldest European book that survives in its own physical form. Um, is, there, is there an older book that's outside of Europe? Is it, is uh, it, is it? Yeah, lots of books in Egypt uh, survive on papyrus from right. you know, 2400 BCE, that, as far back as that. Really? Um, I read recently there were some found. But this is the oldest one that was found in Europe, and yes. I have a model of it, um, which uh, is twice the actual size. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be about this high, all that's left of it. Right. It was found in January of 1962, by a Greek archaeologist, um, Petros Themelis, who was excavating in northern Greece, near Thessaloniki, a funeral pyre. Um, and uh, this book had been on the funeral pyre, had got half burned, and had just rolled off to one side. Um, and uh, when they dug it up, they thought it was a stick, um, <laughs> because it was black like a piece right. of coal. Right. And somehow or other, to his eternal credit, Petros de Malis, whom I have met, um, recognized that it had writing on the inside. Maybe it was his assistant, but he was there. And um, he realized that it had writing. And that makes it the oldest surviving um, book on papyrus found uh, in Europe. It must have been very brittle as well, wasn't it? I mean, presumably um, you can't just pick one of these things. I mean, how, did, no. how did he, once he realized um, it, how did he actually treat it? Well, um, presumably he tried to touch it as little as possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, when you get, a papyrus is the ancient writing material, um, the equivalent of paper. Right. Um, but it grows, it's a very tall reed that grows in the Nile. Okay. And um, it grows these tall fronds and they, they cut the stalks and hammer them together in two layers to make a kind of paper. Right. And um, this stuff, when it's burned, um, uh, becomes like a potato chip, really. Um, it's, so, it's so brittle that you can't bend it without breaking it. Like burnt newspaper. Right. 
And so when they got this out of the ground, um, they contacted the only person in the world who then knew how to deal with these things, an Austrian called Anton Fackelmann. And Fackelmann went to Thessaloniki and by using papyrus juice and static electricity, he managed to separate the layers. And he mounted them on, on paper, which we probably wouldn't do now, and laid them out in the order they came off. They came off, the papyrus was split into two halves, right. um, sort of like this, but down the middle. Right. And it came off as stacks of fragments. And he lifted one layer off after another, and put them in order into, um, on the paper um, in frames so that when they're in the museum now, you can see it in Thessaloniki, um, they have uh, sequences of fragments that aren't actually next to each other because they're um, successive circumferences from half of the papyrus all the time. Okay. So it has not physically been reconstructed. Um, it's become 200 fragments. So he used papyrus, just, just getting back to this idea, papyrus juice and static electricity. So mm -hmm. how, how, did, how did he actually do that? Where, where, I don't know. <laughs> I, I wasn't there and I've never seen it done. Um, how did I he mean, know to do that? I mean, had, had he been doing this sort of thing before? With other yes, he, he worked um, at Herculaneum on the okay. um, burned papyri from Herculaneum. And he um, had separated uh, quite a few of those. Right. One the layers are stuck together much, much more firmly than they were in this case. This was a relatively easy papyrus to do compared with the Herculaneum ones. It just seems like such a bizarre technique. You wonder how many, how many of these things you have to go through before you... <laughs> well, um, right. I don't know how he did it. I mean, it's astonishing that a way was found to right. conserve this material. Right. It really is astonishing. So, but, but he did as you say, and then of course half of it is, my understanding is, I shouldn't say of course, but my understanding is half of it is, is actually burned off, right? Yes, There's the bottom part of the papyrus, um, which would have made it around this size rather than half this height, right. um, is burned off. So you've only got the top um, 16 lines or so of every column of writing. It's written in columns continuously because it's a scroll. The book hadn't been invented. Right. It wasn't going to be invented for another 500, 600 years. Okay. And so, and so then what happened? So he was able to do that. So Fackelman did this, and um, then uh, a Greek philologist called Capsomenos uh, um, um, published the end of the text in 1964. And um, everybody was very excited because this was a commentary um, by an early philosopher or, or scientist on a poem um, ascribed to the mythical singer Orpheus. Um, and this was a very mysterious text at the time, in 1964. Mm -hmm. And um, then uh, there was a long pause. And um, in, until in 1982, um, an unauthorized edition came out in the back of a scholarly journal on unnumbered pages, um, uh, uh, which um, gave the text of the whole papyrus in, its, uh, in some early form. And nobody quite knows who did that text or how it came about. Um, it there was, was a, a leak. Leak. A it was a leak. It was a leak because people got impatient. This thing was clearly going to be very important. Right. And um, it, it was, it, uh, there was uh, great distress that this thing still, still hadn't come out. So, so, so 20 years later, after the original discovery, 
there still hadn't been an, an, an authorized trans. I don't no. even know what unauthorized means, so maybe you can tell uh, me about that. Because well, um, normally the people who are entrusted with publishing a papyrus publish it. Right. Um, uh, this thing is not enormously long. My translation here amounts to, what is it? Eight, not even eight whole pages, single-spaced. Um, and um, it, it wasn't going to be an enormous text. Um, obviously, it was going to be very hard to put it together out of 200 fragments, many of them very small. Um, but people were uh, anxious to see this thing. Sure. So, what, 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 so if I'm, if I'm a, a, a scholar in the field who's not working on this, my mm -hmm. question in 1980, before 1982, is what, what's taking you guys so long? Why, yes. why, why is it taking you so long to actually come out with this? And, and what would the response be? Uh, well, I suppose the response was, well, you know, we want to get it right. Um, but the best can be the enemy of the good. Right. And, um, you know, there are people who, who are perfectionist, quite reasonably, and want to produce the perfect text. So maybe that's what happened. And then the authors um, uh, uh, wrote in reply to this publication. They were very unhappy that it had come out. And they wrote in reply, well, um, you know, we'll bring it out by 1984. And then in 1993, <laughs> notice the date, um, uh, uh, a conference was organized in Princeton where more of this thing came out. Um, okay. The editors were persuaded to um, contribute a text of the first seven columns, and they vetted a translation of the remainder um, in the light of what they could see on the original. So um, uh, that was another step. And when that book came out is when I got interested in this. Although I did once hear a lecture about it um, in Cambridge from uh, Martin West, who's a very great classical scholar, back in 1978. And he um, was speaking about the um, fragments of the poem in it. And he had a text of it then. And I still have the handout from that talk. But, um, and, and this text came. So, so let me just ask a few general questions, if I may. So in, while this is happening, the thing is found in 1962, there's yeah. an unauthorized version that comes out in 1982. Um, while this is happening, and there are some leaks, some slow leaks, 1978, you said there was some paragraph uh, or some text in there. Yeah, Martin some, some material. Some I material. Mean, he, he, he allegedly um, uh, stood in front of the papyrus in, in the Thessaloniki Museum, where it was on display, for so long that he was able to memorize um, enough of the text to go outside and write it down and uh, come up with a, a text by putting all these fragments together. Okay. I mean, <laughs> it, it almost beggars belief, but, um, so, you know, that's... So, uh, certainly contrasted with what other people are doing. But, but, but during this time, is there an understanding of when this thing came out? Does anybody speculating this is from this particular epoch, this is from that particular epoch? We, we know, you mentioned the, the Orphis, it's an uh, Orphis mm -hmm. poem. Right. Uh, and so what, um, what sort of information context do you actually have well, about this thing, even um, if you don't have a real translation yet? There really wasn't uh, much uh, sense of what it should be until, I suppose, 1982. Um, and when the provisional text came out in 1982, um, people began to talk about it as a commentary on uh, this very peculiar religious poem of Orpheus. And in 1982, um, that was a reasonable interpretation. Once the um, first seven columns came out properly in 1997, 
one began to doubt that that was the correct interpretation of what this thing was. I mean, it, it took decades just to begin to talk about what this was. And um, basically, it's, it's, it's um, an interpretation of a fairly uh, crazy poem by an even crazier interpreter um, who had a um, particular axe to grind, and, and that axe, uh, that, that, that motivation only became clear, really, in 1997 which is that um, he uh, wanted to show that um, it was very important uh, not to take uh, religious texts and religious practices seriously, um, literally. You needed to take them, uh, interpret them allegorically and understand them in a different way from the surface meaning. And I think that that is when um, it began to get exciting from my perspective. Um, but um, right up until now, um, I mean, the definitive publication appeared in 2006. Um, uh, so, not very long ago at all. Right. And, um, so this is 44 years after they, they find this thing. They finally come out with the definitive, that's right. the, the definitive publication. That's right. Two, two, two years per paragraph, roughly. It, is there, so I am uh, clearly not expert in this, and I appreciate the motivation to get it right, as you mm -hmm, say. Mm -hmm. But that sounds like an obscenely long period of time. To uh, is, it is, is was there extraordinary. Any, is there any justification to wait that amount of time, is, it, is, it, is there any argument that one could make that says, oh yes, well that's just as long as it takes. For someone who is not a specialist in the field, it seems like that's foot-dragging of, of a rather remarkable nature. It seemed like that to a lot of us. Um, yeah, I mean, one wanted to see this text uh, a, lot, a lot sooner. And um, it was bizarre that it didn't come out more quickly. Um, but um, it is a, a very difficult job to reconstruct. And it's very difficult, not just physically, um, because the pieces um, are uh, you know, damaged and you don't know the order of them and so on, but it was difficult because it didn't seem to say anything that anybody ever expected a Greek text to say. It was completely out of the ordinary. Um, uh, uh, to me, I mean, one comparison that I've heard uh, of, to explain the bizarre nature of this text is that it's as if someone um, uh, took the Book of Mormon and um, quoted bits from it and um, uh, added around it an explanation that, that it's actually the theories of Albert Einstein uh, that are encoded in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Um, that would be strange. That's <laughs> about what we've got here. Um, and, uh, you know, you're dealing with um, a, an unorthodox religious text um, interpreted in a completely bizarre manner. Um, so let's, so. Let's, let's talk about uh, our understanding now of when this was written. Mm -hmm. So, uh, th this dates from, from when exactly? Okay, well, the funeral pyre itself um, looks as though it was burned um, sometime between 350 and 320 BCE. So, um, in the days probably when either uh, in the time of Alexander the Great right. or the time of his father. Right. And um, the tomb was a very rich one. Um, there was a, a huge um, metal uh, uh, mixing vessel, a crater, with scenes of Dionysus and, the, and his worshippers on it. 
um, which was inscribed, uh, by the way, um, with uh, uh, the name of someone uh, whose father was called Anaxagoras, and that name will come up again later. Okay. Um, so it was a very rich set of tombs, and um, so it was, it was burned then. Um, when the book was written, well, the book had to be written either somewhat before then, and since we don't have other manuscripts from that time, it's very hard to say exactly when it was, because we have nothing with which to compare it. But um, there are inscriptions on stone, and the handwriting suggests that it was composed, the, the book was written around 350. Um, so the so middle of the 4th century BC. So roughly of the same epoch that probably, the funeral... Probably, probably. Maybe a bit older. I mean, yeah. it's hard to know. Um, but then, of course, there's another question. Um, this book was not necessarily composed at that date. It was composed at some earlier date. Um, or um, right down to... Or, well, between some earlier date and 350. So... Um, the question then comes back to internal analysis. You look at the text and you try to work out when somebody wrote like this. And of course, languages change, style changes. Right. Um, and we can tell from the style, well, this is not agreed. This is, not contra this is controversial still. Um, I think we can tell from the style that this thing was written in the fifth century, um, that it was written probably around about 420 BCE. Is this the papyrus um, itself, or was this a second edition or third edition when you um, say it is written? It was a copy, right. because, of course, there was no printing. Right. So this would have to be a copy of the author's original autograph. And right. that original autograph should have come into being around 420, okay. um, because it's not written in the style of the more accomplished writers of the 4th century. It's, it's, it's quite... The, the person is not used to writing prose. It's from a time when they really hadn't written much prose, and they weren't accustomed to writing it. Okay. And they tended to write the way they spoke. And that was, uh, that's an indication of quite an early date for the composition. Okay. And um, I, I, so I place it then. I, I'd like to, I want to get back to this, but just before I do, um, this, this question of this manuscript, which was on a funeral pyre, is, mm -hmm. so far as we can tell, is that, is that standard practice? Is that, was that normal practice, or did the, was this just completely incidental? That's a great question. Um, I think uh, I was at first inclined to think that this was purely random, because it's clear that papyrus burns well. And, uh, you know, if you need to burn somebody's body, you need a good kindling. And papyrus was great for that, and the Romans used, used papyrus for kindling funeral pyres, and they talk about it in some poems. And so I was inclined to think that, that this was just a random occurrence. Um, but it's not clear. Um, there are various instances where ancient corpses have been found with books in their hands. There was a corpse found in, in a grave in Romania, which had a book in its hand. And unfortunately, the moment they opened the grave, they could see the book disappear, you know, mm -hmm. uh, disintegrate mm -hmm. as the air got into the grave. Um, there was a similar case in Egypt um, where that book does survive because the air was so dry. Um, but, um, uh, and it's possible that this was actually on the pyre because the person um, who was being cremated actually um, uh, found value in this book. Right. So it could have been that, or it could have been 
some trashy book that was just good to get the fire started. So we, you have a sense that it's written in around 420. Yes. And as you said, this is at a time when uh, prose was somewhat uncommon. It was very much an oral culture, I guess, uh, back then, but, but prose was really coming in. And the difference between Herodotus and, and Thucydides writing very high-level prose, such as you might get in some political science think tank, um, really illustrates the degree to which um, their culture had advanced. Right. And then, as I think I, um, the, uh, the Greeks had started to, or some Greeks, a minority, had started to ask very basic questions about the world. They weren't content with the simple answers, you know, that the sun is a god that um, gets up in the morning, flies over our heads in a chariot during the day, and um, sinks beneath the western edge of the flat earth um, in the evening, um, they started to um, investigate all of these questions um, and ask a lot more probing, penetrating questions about the world um, than had ever been asked before, so far as we can tell. Um, so, um, and these were the Ionian guys, right? That these came were the king um, over to, to Athens and, yes. and, and influenced. Um, them, that's my understanding. The, the, the earliest uh, Greek scientists really were, were Ionians from the other side of the Aegean, right? But because of the political power of Athens in the fifth century and the Persian conquest um, of Ionia, they um, had tended to move west, sure. and so they were in Athens at the time. Sure. And um, the most um, important of them, probably, um, in this context, was a man called Anaxagoras, um, who uh, was from Ionia, but uh, spent quite a while in Athens, and was a great um, friend um, of uh, the leader of the Athenians at that time, their democracy, uh, Pericles. He was and, his mentor, wasn't he? Didn't, 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 um, wasn't with me Pericles his mentor? Well, they always say this that Pericles, yeah. you know, but but these there were no no formal educational institutions at that right. date. So sure. um, these statements always have to be taken a bit of a grain of salt. But um, anyway, he was um, he was very important uh, in the circle of, of Pericles. And um, he came up with some interesting ideas. For example, in 467, um, a huge meteorite fell on Greece um, at Igos Potomai. It would be nice if somebody went and found that. Um, huh. And, um, you know, uh, the sky doesn't look as though it's made of stone. So what's going on up there? Right. It made them ask. Right. Um, and um, Anaxagoras famously uh, concluded from his studies um, the, 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 the sun wasn't, um, you know, the size of a human foot, which had been asserted by Heraclitus in the previous generation, but was actually a lump of molten stone um, as big as the whole Peloponnese, so at least 100 miles across. Oh, so this was a bit of the sun um, that came down? This was, uh, the, this was the idea? Well, I'm not sure what Anaxagoras thought about no. the meteorite, but um, uh, he definitely um, challenged the idea that the sun, uh, you know, was of the size that appears to us, right. um, and uh, was posing important questions about the nature of the universe. Did, he really believe, so, did, did Heraclitus really believe it was the size of a foot? I mean, isn't that... Isn't, that's what he says. But isn't, isn't that just... I mean... I have it here I, I don't in the papyrus. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're right. I don't want to be condescending or anything, but isn't that just sort of silly? I mean, we all know from common experience that when things are really far away mm -hmm. that they, they, they look smaller. 
and we know it's, we have a sort of a, a clear lower limit of how far. So, so the idea that the sun is actually the size of a foot is that there are many very surprising things in some of these thinkers. <laughs> um, uh, the sun is the bre in breadth the size of a human foot and does not wax beyond its size. For if it exceeds its own boundaries at all, the Furies, allies of justice, will discover it. Sure, well, I forgot about the Furies, you see. <laughs> so that <laughs> well, that's new. That comes out of the Dervaini papyrus. Okay, so let's, um, let, let's get back to the, Derv the yeah. Dervaini, that's, that's how yes, it used to be Yes, Dervaini papyrus. Dervaini papyrus. So, uh, you said... That's where it was found, the place in northern Greece. Right. Um, so, um, anyway. So, so you, you said that it's... Uh, it was very surprising when it was found because no one had seen anything like this, that it was wacky mm -hmm. and so forth. So Nobody had ever found an object like this, let alone one that contains something wacky. Right. Um, it was doubly extraordinary. So, so the containing something wacky, let, let me just probe that a little bit in terms of what sort of precedents were there in terms of written materials that people were aware of? What, um, where could this be placed, this actual text, once it finally came out? Well, it's a little like this, it's a little like that. Was it, was it a complete outlier in terms of, of, of other scholarship? I would say that at first it seemed like a complete outlier, that people had never seen a book like this and had no notion of what it was. Um, I mean, uh, we didn't have the Orphic poem, uh, we had little fragments of it, and we didn't have a commentary on it. In fact, we didn't have any commentary on, on early poetry, and it's taken a long time to work out where this thing belongs, but I think it has now, it is now explicable, finally. Um, well, can, can I just make a, a tactical interruption here? I, I think it would actually be a good idea, because I'm noticing that there's some condensation on your glasses, I think it would be a good idea to open up the doors. I don't think sound is as much of an issue as actually getting some air in yeah, here. Yeah, okay, let's have some air. Um, uh, and, and you might actually want to just take your glasses off for a little bit, because uh, I wouldn't want to be in a no, visual setting to, with you. And, uh, I prefer to wipe them, but I, I have to wear, this, wear them because I have a dry eye problem. So I'm going to have to put them back on and clean them periodically, that's all. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's, that's fine, that's much better. So, um, anyway, um, so, so let's get back to away. the papyrus. So, so, so now I understand that, uh, I, I know the date of this thing, the, we're looking at roughly circa 350 BC. Uh -huh. uh, we're looking at rough, in terms of when, uh, uh, when this particular copy was authored, if I'm correct. Uh, and, when and the copy and, was copied. Sorry, perhaps. the copy was copied, right. Yeah. So the original uh, book that was written that you've been able to determine, or scholars have been able to determine, we roughly place at 420 BC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we have some confidence in that is because, from philological analysis, because of the, the actual style, style of, of, of the yes. prose. But the ideas support that kind of date. Right. Um, so talk about that. Tell me, and, tell me about the ideas. Okay, well, um, this was written by someone who, um, who th well, I, I need to look back up a little bit sure. and talk about Anaxagoras Please. some more, because um, not only did he have specific observations to make about, you know, the heavenly bodies or whatever, um, he also had an argument about the nature of the world. The Ionian thinkers had been arguing all along that the world was made of one particular substance. And uh, then, of course, how do you explain uh, the multiplicity of different substances? Right. You know, this, this chair, um, uh, the stones, uh, the wood, whatever. Right. And um, so the uh, theory of Anaxagoras was a variety of 
um, atomic theory. It wasn't um, exactly the same as atomic theory, that the world is made up of atoms, indivisible particles, which the Greeks were developing at this same time. But he had a theory that everything was made up of molecules and uh, that, that the close enough, really. varying composition of these molecules explained the, uh, uh, the world and that things came together by condensation and uh, rarefaction, uh, by heating and cooling, all these physical processes that we quite well know. And what did he say the molecules um, were made of? Uh, well, um, I don't want to go there. It's okay. too complicated. All right. <laughs> um, but um, the uh, uh, point about... Uh, uh, this um, papyrus is that the it um, ascribes to the world um, uh, it, a controlling substance, and that controlling substance is air. Um, that air permeates everything and um, is equivalent to mind or intelligence, because you can't know anything. Um, unless you're breathing, okay? okay. So um, it's because of air that we have intelligence, according to this papyrus. Now that may seem like a nutty idea, but um, Anaxagoras had had the similar idea that um, mind was in everything um, and um, um, controlled the universe. Um, so, Did um, Anaxagoras talk about air specifically, or is that new? Is that new to Air the is different from, from Anaxagoras. It's not. Um, but it's not new with the papyrus, because um, Anaxagoras had a follower, um, Diogenes of Apollonia, yeah. who brought in the idea of air. And um, so uh, this uh, uh, whole complex idea of mind and air permeating the universe, um, uh, in Diogenes of Apollonia, the follower of Anaxagoras, is also in the Devaney papyrus. Um, and so that pins it down, um, it gives it a date after which it has to have been composed of, of roughly the 420s. So um, that is a, a valuable chronological support but, to, um, to the dating. But it seems to me, again, uh, just from what you're saying, that would lend credence to the claim that, that the, the original author of this was Dione, uh, Dione, Diogenes, of Diogenes, <laughs> Diogenes of Apollonia. Yes. Um, well, there's actually a, a, a fairly significant difference between Diogenes of Apollonia and the Devaney author, in that Diogenes um, believed that um, everything in the universe was made out of air, that air was the basic element and everything uh, else that we see was transformed out of it somehow by physical processes. So this is what you were saying before about um, these Ionian philosophers that believe yes. in one substance. Yes. But that's not what you were just Whereas saying. Whereas the right. Devaney papyrus um, thinks that the substances somehow exist independently of air, right. and air permeates them and controls them and is the controlling substance and is mind. And, you right. Know. So air is the facilitator, um, according to the Devaney yes. papyrus, of mind. So there's a, there, so there's a difference right. um, there. No, air and mind are the same. Air and mind are the same. Oh, yes. Oh, and I, thought, I thought air was necessary for mind. And they're, but they're the, same the same as Zeus. And they're the same as Zeus. Okay, back up, back up. Papyrus. Okay, so, so... I told you this text is wacky. I'm trying to get a handle on it. So, <laughs> so, so I've got uh, things that exist, constituent things, and we'll call them molecules, and we won't ask too much right. about what a molecule is. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's some way of bringing them all together or distinguishing one from the other or co uh, combining S separating substances. Separating, mainly. Okay, separating. And, and this 
this process or, or this mechanism or this entity by which that separation occurs is, is through mind, mind, air, mm -hmm. or Zeus, well, and Zeus. Well, they're all the same. All mind, the same. air, and Zeus are all the same. And he says that a number of times in his text. Okay. And this is an utterly bizarre position to have, okay? okay? Because, of course, the Greeks had a polytheistic religion with multiple gods, not just, you know, one god, but multiple gods, gods, um, you know, both male and female, um, of different generations, a whole family of them. They had a, um, a descent, you know, from uh, the sky god, the first god, through Kronos, um, who castrates his father to seize power, and then Zeus imprisons Kronos to uh, take over the universe himself. So it was a very elaborate um, uh, theology, and um, all that is being thrown out of the window here, um, because basically the Devaney Papyrus is arguing that all these gods are the same, um, and they're all different names for mind, or Zeus, or air, or whatever you want to call it. Wisdom is another, another name for the gods. So there's no hierarchy whatsoever. You don't have Zeus, Athena, Hera. No. We don't have any of that. We don't no. have the pantheon. We don't have any of that business. We just we don't. Have, Zeus just stands for some aspect of the divine. He does. And yet, he is also identical with a physical element. Right. Which is a really interesting move. That's almost Mike. spinozistic, actually, but... but, but anyway, uh, so, Spinoza? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Spinoza is all part of this intellectual tradition, I think. Uh, you could actually trace a line from, from right. this thinker down to Spinoza. And then you get to Einstein, you see, and so you're very uh -huh. close to the... You just okay. don't have the Book of Mormon in there. Okay, and then okay. <laughs> well, maybe you do. Um, <laughs> okay. But um, anyway, um, so what we've got is um, a very remarkable um, uh, take on the universe. And this take is characteristic, I suppose, of the intellectual crisis that I think happened in the late 5th century in Athens. Um, and the ideas of Anaxagoras were fine as far as Pericles were concerned, but they didn't fit in um, with others who uh, had more traditional beliefs. So, for example, um, uh, the Greeks believed in sacrifices and they could predict the future or decide what action they should take um, on the basis of how the sacrifices turn out. And um, at one point Pericles was brought uh, a ram which only had one horn. Hmm. And um, uh, uh, the, uh, they took it to um, uh, the seer Lampone, the prophet Lampone, and Lampone said, oh, um, uh, this shows that the state, um, you know, is going to have only one uh, leader and not two. Um, and uh, they took it to Anaxagoras, and Anaxagoras had it killed, and they cut the skull open, and Ag Anaxagoras said, look, here's the other horn, it just didn't manage to make it through the skull. Um, and, uh, you know, so... Good um, scientist. Uh, a, a very good scientist. But um, uh, Anaxagoras got into trouble for these kinds of observations. And um, I think for um, a view of the universe where the gods no longer seem to be in control of it. Um, that is that um, uh, he was explaining everything by physical mechanisms. A he was explaining thunderstorms as not, not Zeus getting angry, but right. um, you know, clouds colliding or whatever. Right. Um, so he was threatening the religious orthodoxy to some, uh, to some extent. Yes. 
Could I and just, sorry to interrupt you one more time, because your, your glass is uh, fogging, up again. fogging up a little bit. So, yep, um, can keep uh, cleaning those. Um, I just don't want you to, because it looks a bit... Uh, yeah, if you could open that up as well. Maybe we, yeah, now there's bolts on the top and bottom of yeah. the side of that door. I think we should open okay. up both doors completely. Yeah, let's do that. And get some air coming through yeah. here. The plants will like that too. No, Louis, th those doors are fine. You're sitting in the way of a door and you are preventing air from coming in. So if you can arrange yeah, for that's the good. air to come in. And then Richard, uh, um, I, I don't want him to look. Well, I can open the windows if I'm allowed to move. I, I, we can I, have some crossbreeze. I think that would be fine. Yeah, I don't see why we, we can't do that. Uh, okay. I, that, that. I don't want to... It'll go all the way up, if you like. Okay. That's, that's, that's fascinating um, about, about, about So, so uh, anyway, Anaxagoras um, uh, got into trouble with this, um, was imprisoned and put on trial, and Pericles couldn't get him off. Um, and he was exiled to his, his homeland, and he went back home and died, you know, a few years afterwards. And the charge was impiety, presumably. And the charge was impiety, um, it appears. Now, there's been a lot of uh, hesitation on the part of scholars to accept this, because they believe that the Athenians, having created the first democracy, um, must have actually been enlightened people and they were very enlightened to create the first democracy, but it doesn't follow that they would understand the relation between religion and science. Um, and uh, clearly they were very worried by these kinds of developments. So Anaxagoras got into trouble. Um, there's a story that the books of Prodicus were burned in the Agora. We don't know how to tr whether to trust that. Sorry, who's, who's um, I don't know who Prodicus is. Um, Prodicus was another thinker who argued that the gods um, were actually the names of humans who had contributed greatly to the development of agriculture and were then deified um, for their efforts. I see. Um, so this was someone else whose views about the gods sure, were a casting problem. aspersions, making them, and, making them just mortal extrapolations. Oh yes, and then just um, uh, 20 years later, um, in 399, the Athenians condemned Socrates to death for um, introducing gods, in, uh, believing in gods in whom the city doesn't believe, and introducing new gods, in other words, and for um, uh, corrupting the youth. So um, there's a pattern there. Sure, but this is fascinating because for, for someone who's not familiar with this, this particular material, and I certainly include myself uh, amongst those people, Socrates is always seen as, as, as the singular case. You know, there, there was this celebrated, there was this co-sedep uh, where Socrates was, uh, was executed and it showed the fickleness of, of Athenian society and it showed the, uh, there were all sorts of reasons for this. What was he doing? Was he being deliberately provocative? Was, was it, was it uh, some sort of comeuppance for having supported the, the tyrants at a, a particular time? Was, was, it, uh, was it some hatred of philosophy? Was it a political coup? Was Socrates uh, himself really deliberately trying to portray himself as a martyr? And of course, there's a years and years and years of people mm -hmm. talking about this as if it was really the only incident of this sort um, that, that actually happened at the time. And what you're saying is, is very, very different indeed. You're saying this is, the, this is one instance, obviously a very famous instance, but one instance of, a, of an established pattern of behavior that the Athenians right. had with respect to impiety. That's quite a, a, quite a different statement entirely. Yes. Um, of course, um, one has to remember that it wasn't like a modern jury trial um, in that um, Socrates was put on trial 
in front of a jury of 501 people, which is a huge jury, right? right. Um, so uh, you have um, all the dynamics of persuading large bodies of people rather than just a few. Um, and of course, to get the majority of a group like that to vote against him, there probably had to be multiple counts against him. Um, the, um, he was certainly on, on, on record as having had a lot to do with people both on the extreme left and the extreme right of Athenian politics. Um, and uh, he then also was very provocative in his trial. Um, there's no question about that. Um, but I, there is also, I think, a religious dimension to this. And um, the religious dimension is clearly part of this background. I mean, Athens had just gone through a terrible defeat in its war um, with the Spartans. And at a time like that, um, traditional religious practice is something that people hang on to. Right. Um, but it wasn't an isolated pattern. It was the second trial for impiety in the same year. Um, in the really? same year as Socrates, another guy, um, Andocides, was put on trial. Um, and um, one of his accusers was the same as one of the accusers of Socrates. So what happened to him? Um, Andocides got off. Um, yeah. and, uh, Maybe he didn't provoke the jury quite uh, so much. He did not. Um, <laughs> we have his speech. Oh, really? And we have the speech of the prosecutor, um, Miletus, who was Socrates' prosecutor. Right. So who, wrote, Miletus, who wrote? Sorry, go ahead. And Miletus was was um, you know uh, uh, quite a determined uh, supporter of the traditional religion. So um, who who wrote the the? I mean, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it doesn't seem to me that Plato would have been writing all this stuff. So how, or, or, or 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 Xenophon or so who? How do we um, know about this? Who who actually well, documented uh, this? Uh, the speeches that we have were written down by the people who delivered them, and we still have them. Oh really? Um, yeah. yeah, in the in that in that trial. Cool. Um, but, um, of course, to understand uh, the whole uh, way, the, the implication of Socrates in this entirely, um, I have to go more deeply into Athenian history, and I have to um, go into my own interpretation of who wrote this papyrus. Here we go. Um, We're ready. We're ready for so, you. Okay. You set it up beautifully. Well, um, the... Uh, uh, Athenians um, started to fight the Peloponnesian War with, against the Spartans in 431, and the war dragged on, um, and it became more and more extreme, as wars tend to do. And um, in 415 BC, um, the Athenians made a huge uh, strategic error. Um, they were persuaded to attack the very rich, um, faraway island of Sicily. Um, and um, as they were about to send the expedition off um, to Sicily, um, a huge expedition described by Thucydides, um, the, uh, somebody in the city, possibly agents of the, of the Sicilians who didn't want the expedition to sail, um, went round um, and smashed all the religious statues that stood in front of the houses. These were called herms. They were statues of the god Hermes. I thought these were phallic um, statues, weren't they? And they had, yes, they had, uh, uh, they, were, they were square pillars with the head of Hermes on the top right. and uh, a phallus halfway down. Right. Um, and uh, whoever it was um, smashed them quite effectively, both the, the noses and the phalloi. 
Um, and, is, the, is the plural? I guess uh, you would know. <laughs> well, uh, it's, what I, it's the way the Greeks said the plural. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, they smashed these things, and um, uh, the Athenians were very upset. They thought it was a terrible omen. Right. And um, you then started to get a, a lot of accusations of religious wrongdoing. Um, somebody, they suspended the right of citizens not to be tortured. Um, in other words, they implemented detention uh, without trial, um, sort of a national emergency. And they, um, uh, people came forward and accused the Athenian leader of the expedition, Alcibiades, of having profaned the mysteries at Eleusis. And the Eleusinian mysteries were the greatest festival of the religious calendar. They were a secret. And um, you weren't supposed to talk about what happened at them. Um, but Alcibiades allegedly parodied them at dinner parties. And, um, you know, they said should be punished for this. So Alcibiades um, demanded to stand trial, but they didn't put him on trial. They let the expedition depart, and then after it had gone, they put him on trial. So Alcibiades defected to the Spartans and gave them tremendous um, intelligence, which they used against Athens. Um, and uh, the expedition in Sicily was an absolute disaster. And the reason it was a disaster um, illustrates this um, atmosphere of religious hysteria, mm -hmm. um, which is that the general left in charge, uh, Nicias, um, wanted to uh, leave the great harbor in Syracuse where they were blockaded by the enemy. And everything was ready. They were going to escape. And there was an eclipse of the moon. And he didn't understand, or um, people didn't understand, what caused eclipses of the moon. Um, uh, some people said, well, it's the Earth's shadow causing it. But others said, no, no, this is a sign from the gods. Right. So we must wait. And the religious experts persuaded them to wait. And when they waited another month, they couldn't get away after that. They were stuck. Um, and trapped and cut down and slaughtered, and the whole Athenian expedition ended in catastrophe. Um, but it illustrates, um, once again, how um, the scientists who actually knew what caused eclipses of the moon um, uh, were not being listened to. Um, and, and the polarization, really, between the two, the two sides. There, there, there really yes. was this division mm -hmm. between, I guess we would say, religious fundamentalists now we would. And, 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 sci and people of a more scientific, rational, naturalistic That's persuasion. Right. And this, That's had, right. this had a very profound, real effect on, on a it turning did. point of the war. Now, where does Socrates come in in all this? Okay. Um, in 423, so eight years before that, um, the comic play, playwright Aristophanes put on a play making fun of all the new learning. Um, it was called The Clouds. The chorus um, consisted of clouds who were uh, floating around uh, spouting nonsense. And the hero of the play, if you can call him that, was Socrates. Mm. And um, he was given a whole series of nonsensical doctrines. Uh, he was doing ridiculous things like measuring um, the distance that a flea could jump from one person's uh, head to someone else's eyebrow in terms of the number of feet um, uh, measured according to the size of the flea's foot. Okay, this kind of, of thing. And, um, in the, and of course, um, the worst thing about it is that he leads astray 
um, the people whom he teaches by teaching them that there are no gods, um, or rather um, that, that uh, as uh, Aristophanes puts it, um, that uh, Zeus has been deposed and Dinos is in charge now. And Dinos is like the name of Zeus in Greek, um, but it means vortex. So Zeus has been deposed and Air is in charge. And when um, uh, the question is asked, so who says this? The reply is Socrates the Melian. Now this is, this is very odd because it's ascribing to Socrates the doctrines of a man called Diagoras who was from the island of Melos. Mm-hmm. And that's why it says Socrates the Melian. And so this, this is an epithet that they... That they're, um, that, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's his origin. Right. Um, but Diagoras um, was uh, reviled by uh, the later Athenians as having been an atheist. And um, so uh, Socrates there is being accused of being an atheist. Um, but what is important to understand is that by the word atheist, the ancients didn't understand it the way we do now. Uh, It could mean someone who didn't believe there were any gods, or it could mean somebody who uh, believed in uh, new gods, um, and gods different from those of the city. So this Diagoras the Melian, tell me, because he's he's the one that Aristophanes is, is... is associating with Socrates. Yes. So, so what did, what's his story? What, well, this is where him. I come to my own interpretation of the Devane Papyrus, and this is not standard stuff. So, um, okay, but, but I want to get to context before you do uh, that, because sure, here, here's what I understand so far. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Aristophanes writes The Clouds, yeah. and he, ascri- he ascribes certain beliefs to Socrates. Yes. He's poking fun at Socrates. He's writing yes. a comedy. And, and in particular, and the belief that air is the important element in right. the world. Right. So this is this vortex yeah. uh, mm-hmm. aspect. Mm-hmm. But, so there are two things as you were talking that confused me. One is that you, you said something like uh, he, he replaces Zeus with air, or he denies Zeus mm-hmm. somehow. He mm-hmm. denies the yeah. stature of Zeus. But, yeah. but according to the, maybe that's a separate argument, but according to the Dravani papyrus, these things are all equivalent. That's right. So this is where the definition of atheism comes in. Um, I think that Diagoras, rather than be an atheist, was actually um, trying to explain the traditional religion in terms of uh, these scientific theories. And so that what we've got in the papyrus is an explanation of traditional religious practices, not only the poem of, um, of Orpheus, but uh, theories about uh, the, what happens in the underworld after we die, um, what ghosts are, and so on. Um, he's trying to explain all of these things in terms of modern physics. Okay, that, the, so, so I want to get there, and I want to get to your interpretation, but I'm still a little bit confused. Let's go back to Aristophanes, mm-hmm. because I still mm-hmm. want to understand what he's saying. Right. So when Aristophanes calls Socrates, Socrates the Melian, mm. he's associating him with this Diagoras of... With Diagoras, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, Diagoras of Milos. And, and what, what exactly does he mean? He means, what, what do you think he means by that? Forget about the Devani Papyrus for a moment. Right. And, and just look at the clouds and just look at that, that expression. Mm-hmm. When he's saying Socrates mm-hmm. the Melian, he means Socrates the unbeliever. Is that really all he means? Does he I mean Socrates think, the air guy? What, what, what I think that's what he means, that Socrates is uh, an unbeliever. Yeah. And that Zeus no longer has the role in the world uh, that he should. Uh, Zeus is the one who oversees 
oaths and people who make agreements. And if they break their oath, um, you know, Zeus is there to punish them. And, um, of course, uh, uh, the question is then asked, well, why did Zeus um, blast his own temple, or Poseidon, um, hit it with lightning, you know, um, last year? Um, but um, this is a, a key role of traditional religious belief, that it guaranteed agreements among people. Right. And when Aristophanes is doing that, he's, of course, writing this play for, for the audience, for the Athenian audience. Yeah, and a they mass audience, 18,000 right. probably. Wow, 18,000, that's, that's, that's bigger than I thought. Anyway, a very large audience. And they would have, uh, when, when they hear the words, uh, Socrates the Melian, they would make that link, of course. They would make that association, presumably, with this real person who had existed, the Agoras of, of Milos. Well, he, he did exist, and he was living in Athens at the time, apparently. Okay. Um, and um, uh, he was a poet, and um, uh, according to our information, he believed in the gods, to start with. Um, but then somebody plagiarized one of his poems, um, and uh, adapted it, uh, took it over without permission. And he uh, uh, swore that it was his own poem, and he wasn't punished by the gods. And Diagoras, according to the story, um, got angry about this sure. and started to write um, uh, against the gods. Um, that is the motivation that's given for the book that he wrote. And he apparently wrote a book, and in the book he um, uh, disclosed things about the mysteries at Eleusis, he disclosed things about the Orphic Mysteries, which is the text of Orpheus that is in this papyrus, and he disclosed some other mysteries as well, and he put people off from getting initiated into the Mysteries. This was all because he felt he was ripped off on a poem? Uh, allegedly, yeah. <laughs> Well, it was his livelihood. I mean, you have to understand, creative sure. people value their, their creations. Sure. But he was um, really angry, clearly. He was really angry. <laughs> and... Um, uh, he had allegedly been very religious before this, and so, you know, when the gods let him down, he, uh, he got angry. Yeah. So, anyway, um, one of the other things we know about Diagoras is that he changed the names of the gods um, to explain them. And that's another thing that this papyrus does. It plays with the interpretations of the names of the gods. So, um, Zeus's father, Kronos, for example, um, is said to have been so called because mind knocked together the elements in the universe to create the sun. And mind knocks sounds a bit like uh, the name Kronos, Kruenus in Greek. In Greek. So um, he played with the names of the gods. And um, uh, Epicurus, uh, just a century later, tells us that Diagoras did this. So he was clearly writing a book. And um, that's uh, why I came up with the hypothesis that this might actually be the book of Diagoras that we're dealing with here. That he wasn't an atheist, um, he was rather somebody who thought that um, the world was governed by mind um, and uh, was uh, uh, a... Uh, uh, it was governed by mind and it was... Um, uh, you needed to explain traditional religious belief in order to show how the world worked. Um, that it made more sense um, if you could explain all of these traditional beliefs um, in terms of mind and air as permeating the universe. 
Tell me more about mind, because I'm not sure I understand what you mean. When uh, air, air, I think I get. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. even, even Zeus, I'm, I have an image of, uh, mm -hmm. rightly mm -hmm. or wrongly. Mm -hmm. um, but when one, when one makes this equivalence between mind um, and God. I, I, yeah, so is this, the, is this what we would call the, the mind of God now? Yes. Is this, is, what, 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 are, what are we really talking about when we're talking we're about mind? We're definitely talking about the mind of God. Um, the, uh, one of the most telling passages about this is in Plato, uh, the pupil of Socrates. Plato, writing about the death of Socrates, um, tells us that Socrates thought that um, Anaxagoras had got things wrong when he um, uh, presented his theories, because um, he presented the world as explicable by t in terms of physical processes, but he said all the time that mind was controlling them, but he never made it clear how mind controls them. And um, Anaxagoras' pupil, Diogenes, and the Devaney Papyrus, both, um, say very clearly that um, mind arranges everything in the universe for the purpose of making it better for humans. Um, and um, in uh, the works of another follower of Socrates, Xenophon, Socrates very clearly says um, that mind uh, is um, uh, responsible for creating the universe and making it suitable for us. So um, this is a creationist hypothesis. Right. Okay? And the creationists at that point were being assailed by the religious fundamentalists. Um, that's an interesting twist uh, compared with today. Um, but uh, so the whole, uh, the reason that, that Socrates rejected the thought of Anaxagoras, as he says, is because he thought it didn't make enough use of mind. And that's what Diogenes and the Devaney Papyrus both do. They actually invoke mind as the um, thing responsible for the universe being as it is, being so good for us to live in. Um, and uh, that's where Socrates disagreed with Anaxagoras. So in your view, if, if we were to bring, so in your view, a couple of things. Let me see if I can summarize. Tell me, tell me where I'm going wrong. So d in your view, Diagoras uh, of Milos wrote the Derveni Papyrus. Mm -hmm. I have no proof of that. Okay. And I, yeah, yeah, sure. One thing I wanted to say at the beginning is that normally a papyrus roll has the author and title at the front and at the back because where are you going to put it? There's no spine to right. put the title on. Um, and the front of the papyrus is lost. The outside was completely burned. Um, the back of the papyrus um, exists. But it turned out, um, when it was examined a few years back, um, that Anton Fackelman, when he conserved the papyrus, stuck the last piece of it upside down. So if there is a title, it may still be there, but it's going to be on the other. Uh, it's on the side that was stuck to the paper. So, so um, better technology. Somehow. With better technology, we ought to be able to read that title if it's there. I mean, maybe it was blank. Maybe there was no title given. Of course, once we get but, the technology, we're going to have to wait another forty years for them to. Anyway, that's well. Uh, <laughs> hopefully not. Um, hopefully not. So, um, so, so let, me, let me back up again to see if I can summarize. So, so if, based on what you said about Socrates, if, if Diagoras of Milos is the author of this, it's your speculation, you have no proof mm -hmm, of this, mm -hmm. it's in keeping with, with various things, would, 
it seems to me from what you were saying that Socrates would have been very much in agreement with this, with the Derveni Papyrus. Is that, well, is that a fair claim? Um, uh, it's not clear whether he would, because we don't actually, Socrates never wrote anything. Right. Um, we have accounts of what he thought by Plato, who had theories of his own, and by Xenophon, who was a military man and was not much given to theories anyway, um, and um, some fragments of some works by his other followers. Um, they mostly make it pretty clear that Socrates' most important claim was that he knew um, more than anybody else because he knew one thing, and that is that he knew that he didn't know anything. Mm. So, the Socratic paradox. Um, and um, so, uh, on the other hand, um, it is clear that some of his followers had peculiar um, opinions about the gods. Uh, Antisthenes, one of his followers, um, believed that there was only one god. And it's pretty clear from what Socrates says in the Apology, which is a fairly good account um, of what he did, um, that he went around questioning the poets about their traditional beliefs. Um, you know, is it a good idea to believe that um, uh, uh, Kronos castrated his father in order to seize power in the universe and that Zeus threw his own father into prison um, uh, in order to take over the universe? Um, Socrates thought that was not something we should believe about gods, that gods should be good and um, uh, he also, of course, had the famous daimonion, the um, divine voice that warned him not to do certain things when he was thinking of doing them. Right. And this was held against him, that he was um, communing with a god that wasn't officially recognized by the Athenian state. Um, so uh, it's not entirely clear what Socrates thought, but I think the idea that Socrates was... Um, had questions about the traditional religion is, is far from impossible, even though it's also clear that he observed the outward forms of the traditional religion scrupulously. Right. Well, you mentioned at the very beginning, uh, or, or at least towards the beginning, about one of the messages of this papyrus being that we shouldn't take things literally. Mm -hmm. That there is, this, there is this sense that we should, we should use the story of the gods allegorically. Yeah. We should, uh, we should, we should understand the message roughly, but that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be strict literalists. This seems to be something along the lines of what you were now uh, ascribing to perhaps Socrates and others. Right. Um, but also, it seems to me very much in keeping with a naturalistic, more scientific, uh, approach is that fair or is that is that not a fair? Um, it is uh, uh, more in keeping with a scientific approach, and this is where the whole ambiguity um, of the of the position of these early scientists um, is most manifest. Because if you identify the supreme god as an element in the physical universe, that is air, right? Um, have you still got a supreme god or not? Um, many Athenians will have wondered about that. Um, and of course, um, if you look at it from the point of view of the scientists who are trying to do their research and find things out and come up with new theories, um, they may well have felt after what happened to Anaxagoras that it was um, a good idea to uh, show, to try to show the public that actually you can see the science reflected even in the traditional religious books. So um, that, I think, is what um, the papyrus was trying to do. It was trying to say, well, 
here's this text by Orpheus, which is even more scandalous than, than the other religious books. It says that Zeus raped his mother. Okay, That's one of the things that the Orphic poem said. Mm. And I can explain that. It doesn't actually mean that Zeus raped his mother. It means something like, uh, you know, that air separated the elements out and made the sun. That's probably what he thought. We don't actually have that part of what he thought. But he will have offered some explanation for these completely unacceptable myths that the, 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 the Greeks, that Greek, traditional Greek religion rested upon. So, um, uh, and then in the um, generation after Socrates, um, people start to say, well, you can't actually even rely on allegorical interpretations. The solution is to throw out all of poetry, all the traditional beliefs. And um, Plato in the Republic, which was written um, perhaps 25 years after Socrates' death, says, um, well, um, you know, you shouldn't actually uh, look for allegories in the works of Homer. Um, you actually need to uh, just reject them from the ideal state altogether. You know, thank you, Homer, you've produced wonderful poetry. We'll put a crown on your head and send you away. We don't want you here. Um, so that was the next step that they took. A further separation. And this, and this whole thing continued to the following generation when Aristotle, the greatest scientist of antiquity, um, in the end, when um, the politics in Athens turned against him, um, after the death of Alexander, and he was uh, uh, a Macedonian, identified with, with uh, Alexander, um, he had to leave Athens um, because he was put on trial for impiety. And he left Athens saying uh, that he didn't want the Athenians to sin a second time against philosophy um, because they had already executed Socrates. So this mechanism of impiety trials really changed the course of intellectual history. Um, it meant that efforts to reconcile um, the science with the traditional religion backfired badly, and um, it uh, uh, had serious effects on, on the progress of science, I think, in antiquity. But this is also fascinating because it has, the story that you're telling seems to have serious parallels with a story that comes 2,000 years later. When you're when you're looking at the the Reformation, the Counter Reformation, the Enlightenment, absolutely. and so forth, I mean, you, you really have some very strong parallels that, mm -hmm. that, that that seem to exist. Yes. So so here, so I think we've we've been able to get a, a fairly clear perspective of what what you believe. How has this been received by um, the, the scholarly community? Well, uh, I don't really think it's been addressed. Um, hmm. Uh, there was a, a very a very fine book in many ways on the Devaney Papyrus by Gabor Betteg, who has an appendix um, uh, critiquing my ideas on Diagoras. Um, but um, generally speaking, I mean, Michael Freda, who um, died recently, was a very great um, uh, ancient philosopher um, in uh, Oxford, um, wrote a piece suggesting that the Devaney Papyrus was by uh, forerunner of the Stoics. Well, that's actually right, because I think this material was um, uh, a forerunner of the Stoic philosophy of later antiquity, which believed in, in fire as the element and a sort of pantheistic divine mind running throughout the universe. Um, but um, he doesn't want to take it back quite as early as I think it has to go back in terms of style. And otherwise, I don't think the idea has had much traction, probably because I didn't write a book about it. I just wrote it in articles. 
I don't know, I'm guessing. Hmm, you should write um, a book with very large... I want to write a book. Very large letters on the title, right? A gold, embossed in gold or something like that. Well, um, uh, I have a year's leave and I'm, I'm wanting to do something like that. Okay. Um, well, I hope we can spur you on to that. But, 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 but before we, we move away from that, it seems to me that there, there are two things going on here. And, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm missing something. But it seems to me there are two things going on. In the first case, there is this whole question of this particular papyrus. Mm -hmm. Who wrote this papyrus? What influence did it have? How indicative was it of the jet prevailing mood? Or, or was it some, somehow anomalous? And, right. and, and that sort of thing. What was the general culture and understanding and set of beliefs in society and, and all the rest of that? And who was the author? And this mystery story of this book and, and how much impact it had and so forth. Um, and then, but then there's something quite different, it seems to me, that is loosely connected but quite different, which is this story uh, that we were, uh, that you were talking about before, where Socrates, the charge of impiety against Socrates represents um, the, the last, or perhaps not the last, the, the most significant of a, of a stream yeah. of these sorts of occasions, these sorts of impiety trials. And right. it really represents a very strong tension within the Athenian community between what we would say aspects of a more naturalistic way of looking at things, or at least not strictly traditional, and a yes. fundamentalist way of, way of looking at things. Absolutely. So when I ask you how have, have these views been received, there's the question of, okay, who wrote this, this papyrus, and, and you think it's Diagoras, and somebody else thinks it's Joe, or mm -hmm. Joe Agoras, or something, um, or something like that. Uh, Euthyphro, or um, uh, is one candidate that's being suggested. Okay. Um, so there are others, right? And, and, and that's a whole story, and, and then mm -hmm, we can mm -hmm. talk more about right. that. But You're the, right. But there then are. there's that whole issue mm -hmm. uh, about science and religion and the, and the, and the politics and the yes. culture and the turmoil within the background of the Peloponnesian War or what have you. And, and are there people who are more sympathetic to that or who take, take you to task and say, no, 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 that's completely wrong? Um, or, or, or what's the fallout uh, there? Well, I think that there's a, there's a division. Um, there was a book on the religion of Socrates, uh, 1995, by McFerrin. Um, which definitely um, goes along with the idea of a religious crisis. Um, and there was a book by Furley on the mutilation of the Herms, that, that affair, which makes it very clear that it was a huge religious crisis. But then, you know, the standard um, history of Athenian religion um, doesn't really want to go there. And um, I think the reason is that people have a uh, a rather idealized view of how Athenian democracy worked. I mean, it was a huge advance on um, the political systems that had operated in the past, but um, uh, there were still um, very few protections. If the majority wanted to do something, um, supposing the majority of the Athenians had voted to cut off the left hands of everyone who was left-handed, um, it's not clear what would have stopped the Athenians from doing that. Sure. Um, um, presumably public outrage, but... Um, well, maybe not. Uh, I mean, there was this whole Melian Dialogue uh, the, episode, the, the right? The Melian Dialogue was the Athenians dealing with non-Athenians, so, you know, that's, that's rather different. But still in a barbarous fashion, but right? Absolutely. A, a tyrannical um, mob rule type of... Yes. Thing. The founders of the American democracy were very anxious to avoid um, the model of Athenian democracy, which is why they built in a lot of checks and balances. Some people say so many that nothing gets done. Um, so um, there wasn't, I think, uh, the degree of control or, or check on what could happen in Athens. Um, uh, and something like the trial of Socrates, he had to argue his own defense, and the whole thing was over in one day. Um, it doesn't bear thinking about. 
Um, so, and there was no appeal um, from the death penalty. And, uh, well, it was worse than that. Didn't more people actually vote for the death penalty, uh, vote, vote in favor of the death penalty than, 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 than vote against him? I mean, he, yes. he, he was convicted by a fairly narrow margin, but That's then when right. it came to the death penalty, of course, he didn't give them much choice. Uh, he, he, he was uh, pretty uncompromising. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's, it's likely that uh, people wanted him just to go into exile. And right. uh, he weighs that option and says he won't because he believes in what he's doing. He does not want to leave and he wants to go on philosophizing and, and provoking the Athenians. He, he's like the gadfly that wakes up the uh, lazy horse um, just lying there in the field doing nothing. Um, so he wanted to go on philosophizing and challenging the Athenians. And uh, enough of them decided that they didn't want that. So, so, so let me get back to the, so your claim. So the claim is that one of the principal reasons why we're not sufficiently cognizant of this, uh, the social turmoil that's happening in around 420, 415, mm -hmm. whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, BC in Athens, between the religious fundamentalists and, and those who are looking at a more allegorical notion of, uh, of the divine, who are looking at a more naturalistic ex explanation of mm -hmm. phenomena and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, the reason why we're not as sensitive to that today is because we are reluctant to, to look very, very closely at the Athenian world in an objective manner because we have some sort of romantic view of them as, as, as the, the progenitors of our, our democratic system. Yes, so yes, we're so. invested in, in democratic ideology, and we should be because it's better than all the others, but it doesn't mean that it was perfect, and it certainly wasn't perfect when it was first invented. Um, uh, but of course there is another factor, which is that at the time, all these scientific explanations of things um, couldn't be verified. Right. Um, because experimental science hadn't taken off. Right, and we're wrong. Well, and I mean. um, many of the explanations were wrong. <laughs> and a lot of them were demonstrably wacky or unlikely. And so, um, you know, they were um, defending a position which was quite hard to defend because the empirical evidence to back it up just wasn't there uh, very often. So now I'm going to jump into something, something, something else that you've done because uh, uh, it seems to me that you're... You, you, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to speak to you is you've done all sorts of different sorts of things. You, mm -hmm. You're very eclectic. Mm -hmm. You have clearly uh, a, a great interest in this particular uh, piece of work, the Derveni, uh, Derveni Papyrus, and uh, as well as the, the, the thesis that you have about Athenian society, which strikes me as arguably even more important hmm. uh, than, than that. But uh, one of the things that you were able to, to demonstrate was, by, again, by philological analysis, the difference in time between uh, Homer's works and Hesiod. Oh, yes. Uh, which, which seems like a, just a fascinating thing. Now that I have the opportunity to speak to, to, to a classicist, I, I would imagine that there would be many people who would say, well, how do these guys know exactly when, when things were written? Mm -hmm. I mean, we mentioned this a little bit. Well, it's when you all talked relative about, about, chronology. About, 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 uh, um, what I looked right. at was um, the way that you can date these poems by the number of um, uh, older versus younger forms in them. Right. And they had to be very common things which occur a lot. So, um, you know, it was uh, quite good, to, quite easy to get statistically valid results. But I should tell you that there are a lot of classicists that don't like those results, and um, and therefore are just sort of shutting their eyes to them. And so, I, do they not like them? So, with. so yeah, I, I've I've heard this before. So, is it the sense that 
your statistical analysis is wrong, that you no. should have used this parameter instead of that parameter, no. or the frequency. So, so <laughs> what, don't what like is... like results. Yeah, but, the, 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 I mean, seriously, that. that's, I, I find that these are obviously intelligent people. They have, they have different views. Well, they're not, they're not sort of um, focused on mathematics and how mathematics work, I think, so... But they have to somehow take your argument, presumably, they have to do something with the argument rather than say, I don't like mathematics. Um, I mean, well, one would imagine. Uh, it's, it's, they, they come up with other kinds of arguments. So they say, well, this particular passage was clearly written after 663 BC. And I say, well, okay, if it was, um, it's, it's clearly stuck in. And I can't tell you the date of any particular line because it doesn't give me a sufficiently large sample size. But I can say that the whole thing goes back much further than that. And you say that based upon what? Just to be very, very clear. Um, for, for well, uh, on um, uh, the uh, frequency with which old forms um, uh, are replaced by young forms um, as the language advances, and they say, let's say, it's instead of it is. Right. Um, uh, the number of times they say it's versus the number of times they say it is, and then I take you know a dozen other things like that, and I count them and I tabulate how many are the old form and how many are the young form and you can see it, you can draw a graph um, and you superimpose the different graphs and you say okay this is, this is the answer and I'm very surprised that that research hasn't, um, hasn't gone over more, uh, hasn't been better received. But who, who was, I mean, wasn't, isn't this the same sort of Philological analysis, roughly. That wasn't this guy. What was his name? Perry, the Californian guy that was a, that was able um, to show. So I don't Norman know much Perry, about this. Yeah. But, but um, so, so this notion that that the Homeric odes were actually poems that were meant to be sung or meant to be at least spoken out loud because of the rhythmic structure that he was mm -hmm. able to do. Again, mm -hmm. some sort of statistical analysis to back uh, up this claim, right? Isn't that wasn't quite a statistic? Well, I suppose it was statistical, but um, it wasn't mathematical. Let's put it that way. Uh, he showed that there was a whole structure there, and the classicists were happy with that. Because um, he didn't but, use, like, but he whatever, didn't, some functions? <laughs> he didn't really <laughs> use statistics, no. Okay. Um, but the statistics I used were absolutely elementary. I mean, they're not advanced at all. And, um, you know, they just seemed to me... Uh, well, at the time, uh, the opinion I had was the majority opinion. So I, I thought, well, I've managed to prove what everybody has always thought. Now a lot of people have changed their view and they think that Hesiod was earlier than Homer so they don't like my statistics and it's it's pretty funny right i mean differing views of course are is a completely fair game it's just what what is a bit hard for me to get my head around is is how somebody can have a, a coherent seemingly rigorous argument that is just not com combated on its on its own merits like it's well, one thing to just recently say recently there was a there was a conference and um, there were people combating me on my own merits and checking my math and finding some minor errors um, but uh, they didn't really, um, you know, uh, shake it as far as I can see. Okay, well, that's, but that's a whole other, I mean, th that's, that's all part of the fair game. It's just this whole idea of, well, I don't want to talk about it because I don't like math. It seems, seems, <laughs> it seems a bit hard, to, well, hard for me to get Well, the world is very compartmentalized, and I think this is one of the things that um, I tried to do, which is, from the beginning, if, you're, if I was going to write about Homer, I felt I needed to know about linguistics, and about archaeology in Greece, and uh, about literature, and about epic poetry, and um, primitive or early societies, um, and all of these different things. And we can't compartmentalize ourselves off too much, because then we don't see broadly enough, and widely enough, and deeply enough, and we can't actually add new things. 
And it's adding the new things that really matters. That's, that's, uh, that's right. what gets me up in the morning and, and you know, keeps me working, is to find out something new. And, uh, of course, when you find out there are many, many ways to be wrong as well as to be new, so uh, one, one hopes to winnow those out through further study, but it's, the important thing is to try to do something new and not just the same old thing all the time. And, um, and so that, I think, is, is what I've been trying to do um, in these various related fields. They're not as unrelated as they may look, but um, uh, there is a pattern, um, in fact. And, um, of course, one of the patterns here is that this is related to, the Devaney papyrus is related to the early reception of Homer. One of the first um, critiques of Homer that was made was the suggestion that it's immoral for the gods to be fighting a battle in Homer. So somebody called Theagenes came along and said, well, actually, it's not the gods fighting. Um, it's the elements that are at war. The fire is at war with the water. and uh, the, you know, It's just um, an allegory. It's an allegory. And that allegory was um, put together about a century before the Devaney papyrus. And it's one of the roots for the kinds of interpretation that the Devaney papyrus is offering. Um, uh, and equally absurd, to be honest. Um, uh, some of these interpretations are, are really, really strange. Um, and uh, they don't bring particular credit to the early scientists who were trying to marry um, uh, religion uh, with uh, their scientific advances. Right. But of course it's important to remember that um, uh, Sir Isaac Newton spent as much time writing about theology as he did about science. Yeah. And he um, wanted his science to prove the rightness of his theology. That was a lot of his motivation. Right. And often, often ignored now, nowadays. You're, mm -hmm. you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you to speculate for me. Uh, I, I know that uh, one of your other interests uh, is, is the Herculaneum papyri mm. and Philodemus and all the rest of this stuff. So uh, most people, most amateurs like myself, are fascinated by this idea that lying somewhere outside of Naples could be all sorts of texts that uh, nobody has seen before, nobody mm -hmm. has imagined, mm -hmm. that we, we know that there were so many um, ancient manuscripts that have been lost to us. We know that for a fact, that yeah. uh, just an enormous number. So let me ask you to speculate on what sorts of things might be there. What do you actually believe is there, let alone what well, might be there? Because all sorts um, of possible things might it, be there. It's, but, an, but, it's an amazing opportunity, because that is the only place in the ancient world where a library was destroyed in the conditions that may, uh, that should have ensured its preservation. Um, the stuff we have found in Egypt, um, most of those books were thrown on the rubbish heap as uh, so they'd been torn up. Um, these should be still in their pigeonholes, in their carrying boxes, arranged with their labels, with the statues of the author who wrote them on top. Um, uh, we have some of those from Herculaneum. They used to put a little statue of the, of the bust of the author on top of his books right. to show you where, what the call number was, effectively. And um, so... Uh, you think we'll have one of those? You think we'll, well, there's another Devaney papyrus lying, lying under Herculaneum it's, right it's, now? It's not inconceivable. Um, the books we have from Herculaneum were a philosopher's private library um, uh, that were given to his patron, a great Roman magnate. 
Um, but that great Roman magnate should have had a standard library, a library of the main important works. And um, it ought to have contained a lot of works of um, not only of Greek philosophy, but of history, of poetry. Um, uh, it should contain Roman literature, Roman law, law texts. I mean, these people needed to know Roman law. Um, it should have contained Roman history. They all had to know their Roman history. So um, there should be a main library there. Um, there's a room on the, uh, at the back of the area that was excavated in the, in the 18th century, which was clearly a lecture room. It has circular seating, right. and um, it looks as though they held lectures there. Cool. Well, in the 18th century, they only entered the top floor of the building. We now know that there were two more floors underneath. Let's see what was in them. Uh, I think there ought to have been a library somewhere, yes. And, um, you know, where is it? Um, it could have thousands of books in it, many thousands. Um, the uh, library from Herculaneum that we have is probably 1,200. Um, but we have records of ancient libraries containing 50,000 scrolls. Where are they? Well, they're probably still in Herculaneum. Um, it's the place. And maybe there'll be something just as wacky, if not even wackier, than the Duveni papyrus that's waiting for us to, uh, to discover. There may be, but it would be hard to beat the Duveni papyrus <laughs> for wackiness. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's it been was a pleasure. A pleasure. Thank I've you enjoyed much. it too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Linda Colley, John Elliott, Maria Mavrudi, and Jay Rubenstein. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.